And that was one of my favorite messages I've preached in a long time. But today is the war, and that might seem like, well, hi there. I know, you miss me. She misses me. Oh, good to see you. So, um, any rate, um, now I'm all discombobulated. Okay, the war, that's where we're at, okay? It might seem like a strange title to a Christmas message. You might be envisioning maybe some battle between Frosty and the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or something like that, which incidentally Frosty would totally kick Rudolph's butt. Rudolph's a little bit of a wimp, a little bit on the wussy side, but this message is not about that. This is message is about how the birth of Jesus ignited a war. It ignited a revolution. And to help you see that, I want to look at three enemies of Christmas today. Not the Grinch, okay? Not anything like that. Not Scrooge. Real enemies. I want to focus on Augustus, Herod, and a dragon. Believe that or not. Let's start with Augustus. In Luke chapter 2, it says that Jesus was actually born during the reign of an emperor named Caesar Augustus. A little bit of history here. Augustus, when his father, Julius Caesar, passed away, declared Julius to be a deity. So from then on, Caesar Augustus was referred to as the son of a god. He also had some other titles that are going to sound familiar to you. He was called the king of kings, the lord of lords, savior, and prince of peace. Those were all titles that had um, that Augustus were attributed to Augustus. Now, his title, the Prince of Peace, was a little bit uh, misleading because his idea of peace was to slaughter everybody that opposed you. He continued to proffer this idea that you could mix peace with violence and aggression, something that world leaders to this day are still trying to believe and, and, and follow. You cannot mix violence and peace. When you mix violence and peace, you don't get true peace. You get a disaster. It's like mixing manure into your milkshake. Nobody wins, okay? If you mix violence with peace, you don't get true peace. All you get is conformity and oppression. But I'm going off on a little tangent here, okay? So back to Augustus. It was actually said of Augustus, there is no other name under heaven by which mankind can call upon and be saved. That's what it was said about him. People started practicing emperor worship at this time, and they also, the cities that would declare Caesar is Lord were referred to as the ecclesias. A little bit more on that in a moment, okay? Now, during the reign of Augustus, Jesus Christ was born in Bethlehem. We know that from all the Christmas stories and movies we've watched since we were a little kid, okay? Jesus was born, and a short while later, the Jesus movement exploded, and small groups of Jesus followers would gather together in houses, and they would call these gatherings ecclesias, because it's the Greek name for church. Then these followers started referring to Jesus by these titles, Savior, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, Prince of Peace. Do you see how subversive the early Jesus followers were being? They were taking titles that used to belong to Augustus and they were attributing them to Jesus now. They were saying, Augustus isn't Lord, Caesar isn't Lord, Jesus is Lord. And it was risky to join up with these early followers because anybody who refused to declare that Caesar is Lord would have been executed on the spot. They had guts. 
A new kingdom was being inaugurated at the birth of, of Jesus. The old empire was all about fear and oppression, but this new kingdom was different. In fact, when Jesus tells people, the kingdom of God is among you, that word kingdom that he uses is actually a feminine word because he's saying, look, the kingdom that you know, the kingdom of Augustus, that's all about violence and fear and oppression and control. My kingdom's different. It's about love and peace and nurturing. So Augustus was definitely an enemy of Christmas because his kingdom was in direct opposition to the flow of God and what God was doing in the world. So that's enemy number one. Enemy number two, Herod. In Matthew chapter 2, we're introduced to a guy named Herod, and it can be confusing. When you read the Bible through for the first time, you read about Herod here, Herod there, at all different time periods, and you're going, how old did this guy live to be? Well, there were actually a lot of Herods. It was just a title of a king at that time. So there were so many Herods in the Bible. It always reminds me of George Foreman, the ex-professional boxer, because he named six of his seven children George, okay? And that's kind of what the Bible's doing with Herod. Hey, there's another king. What should we name him? Herod. Let's go with Herod, okay? That's how it went. The particular Herod that you read about in the Christmas stories is Herod the Great. There are so many villains in movies. I'm a movie buff. There's the Wicked Witch of the West. There's Voldemort. I shouldn't have said his name if you know the movies, okay? There's Voldemort. There's Hannibal Lecter. There's just so many villains. Herod is definitely a person you'd want to put in the villain category. Not a good dude, not a good dude. He was king in the region Jesus was born in, and he served under Augustus Caesar. He was actually a puppet in Augustus' hand. And he was known for his violence. Herod the Great had multiple wives, and at one point he questioned the faithfulness of his favorite wife. Evidently, when you have multiple wives, you like label them favorites. And he questioned the faithfulness of his, of his favorite wife. So what does he do? He has her executed, but he doesn't stop there. He decided to really stick it to the family. He had both of her brothers executed as well. Later on in his life, he became jealous of his eldest son, who is going to be his successor. So what does he do? He's Herod the Great. I'll tell you what he does. He has his eldest son executed. Then, on his deathbed, he wanted to make sure that there was some pain that happened when he died. So he had some of the leading authority and civil figures in his area rounded up and thrown in prison with the orders that the moment he died, they were all to be executed too. That would ensure that there were some people that were weeping upon his death. This is not a good dude. And he proved himself at the birth of Jesus to be a megalomaniac because he sent a death squad to round up and slaughter all of these innocent children in a desperate attempt to kill the infant Jesus who he viewed as a threat to his kingship. And he had that right. So Herod, you can see, is definitely an enemy of what Christmas is all about. And the last enemy I want to talk about is actually the biggest one. Literally, it's a dragon. I want to show you a remarkable front yard Christmas display. Some of you have seen this. It, was, it became quite famous. This is in Louisiana. There's a lady named Diana Rowland, and this is her front yard Christmas display. I don't know if you can make it out very well. The picture doesn't do it justice. It's inflatable dragons. She has inflatable dragons. She sets them up every Christmas. I think it's awesome. The author of Harry Potter found out about it, J.K. Rowling, and sent a message to her saying, this is an awesome Christmas display. 
Her neighbors didn't think that. Her neighbors are so tightly wound they couldn't pass a BB, okay? Because they said this. They, sorry, <laughs> sorry, okay? They sent her a little nasty gram that said this. This display is totally inappropriate at Christmas. It makes your neighbors wonder if you're involved in a demonic cult. Please consider removing the dragons and may God bless you and help you to know the true meaning of Christmas. Had to inject that little Christianese at the end, right? Oh my gosh. Diana responded, I think, the exact way I would have responded. She added two more dragons to her Christmas display. And she didn't stop there. She put halos on their head. Oh my gosh. And on one of them, she put a Santa hat. Okay? I loved it. Because I think Diana has it right. Because there is a dragon that's part of the Christmas story, but it's not an inflatable one, and it's definitely not wearing a halo. I'm going to read five verses for you out of the last book of the Bible, which is called the book of Revelation. And it's a trippy book, okay? It's hard to understand. It was written by a pastor named John who was in exile on a small island in Patmos. And in Revelation chapter 12, the first five verses are his vision of what's taking place in the spiritual realm at the birth of Jesus. It's very imaginative, and it's brilliant, and so full of truth. So I want to read these five verses for us. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head. That's in reference to the nation of Israel. It's not about Mary, okay? It's about God's chosen people. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. So there's your dragon. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to the earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. <coughs> Excuse me. She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all the nations with an iron scepter, who will be a king. And her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. What an amazing section of scripture, okay? The dragon in these verses is later described to be the devil or Satan working through the agency of the Roman Empire at the time. And notice the thought there that the dragon tried to devour the Christ child. Listen, I hate that there are spiritual forces of darkness at work in our world. I hate that, but there are. And it's not red men in, with pointy pitchforks or little shoulder demons. It's real forces of darkness that are in direct opposition to the life and ways of Jesus. Okay? Now, there's more going on in this world. You just have to accept this, please. There's a spiritual realm, a spiritual dimension. There's more going on than meets the eyes. I've experienced too much to believe otherwise. You can tell this is true because whenever you try to do anything good, anything beautiful, anything that makes the world better, anything that moves things forward in the world, you will always experience pushback and resistance. There's something out there that doesn't want things to move forward. There's something out there that doesn't want people to experience love and joy and strength and goodness and wholeness and Jesus. Here's where it gets personal really fast. The same dragon that tried to devour Jesus is also bent on our destruction. Let's read a couple of verses out of the book of 1 Peter chapter 5. Be alert and of sober mind. Be careful. 
your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. There's that word devour again. I was talking about this with a small group of friends last week, and I was sharing with them, look, I know there are spiritual forces of darkness out there, a dragon and his legion of helpers, so to speak. And I wanted to share with them some of the tactics that I've noticed in my 40 years, 40 plus years of following Jesus that the dragon uses against me. And I wanted to share those with you today as well. The first one is quite obvious. It's temptation. There's always temptation for every single follower of Jesus. I have a friend that's a fly fisherman, and I know some of you are fly fishermen, and he's freaky good at it. Freaky good. I've never gone fishing with him when he hasn't caught a fish. Never. He is so amazing. But he goes, and to be a good fly fisher person, you have to kind of be okay with bugs and science, okay? He's kind of a geek. All right, And he goes and he'll step into the stream and he'll look around and he'll see the bugs that are flying and which ones are hatching. He's looking for bugs and he knows exactly which fly, which delicately tied hand fly to use to catch that particular fish in that particular stream at that particular time of year with that particular bug flying around. It weirds me out because I'm a lure person. I just put on something shiny and throw it out there, okay, and hope for the best. Maybe it'll just, something will accidentally bite it. But he's like a scientist. It is so amazing. The devil's like him. Not him exactly. He's a neat guy, okay? But the devil's like a really good fly fisherman. He knows exactly which temptation, exactly which sin, exactly which small bite of evil to dangle in front of us so that we'll bite onto it and he can just lure us away from what we're supposed to be about. We've got to be on guard. Our job as followers of Jesus is the relentless pursuit of being the person and living the life that God has planned for us. Anything away from that is sin. It's biting the lure and you've got to spit it out. If we don't, we will regret it. I haven't caught a lot of fish, but I do know this. When a fish bites a fly, when it bites a lure, it regrets it. Because that fish ends up with a hook in its mouth, getting pulled in, beat over the head, put in a basket, and later eaten, okay? It's not a good moment for the fish when it bites the fly. It's not a good moment for us when we bite into, when we grab a hold of whatever Satan, the devil, is tempting us with. Sure, it's tempting. That's what makes it a temptation. But the moment we give into it, our life isn't better. It's filled with regret and shame, and remorse. So that's the first thing he uses against us is temptation. That's an obvious one. The second one, and this is a biggie in my life, oftentimes the dragon doesn't use temptation against me. He uses distraction. He doesn't tempt me with something really bad. Hey, Tim, go out there and betray your friends. Hey, Tim, go rob a bank. Or hey, Tim, go commit a murder. It's nothing like that. He doesn't tempt me with the really bad. Instead, he distracts me away from the really good. It's almost like this process. Hey, Tim, go ahead and spend uninterrupted time with your family and friends. Hey, Tim, go out and serve somebody sacrificially. Hey, Tim, go out and do something good that moves things forward in the world. Hey, Tim, go ahead and worship God with your whole heart. Dive right in. Do it. Just do it tomorrow. That's the temptation. That's the, not the temptation, but that's the tactic. And then tomorrow arrives and the same thing happens. Lather, rinse, and repeat. And before I know it, I have completely missed out 
on all kinds of blessings that God wants to pour into my life and all kinds of experiences he wants me to have with him. It's awful. Distraction is a huge weapon that the dragon uses against us. And the last one I want to mention is accusation. The name Satan or Hasatan in Hebrew in the Old Testament means accuser. And that's what he does in our life. He accuses us of awful things. He does it to me all the time. Tim, you're a horrible person. You're a horrible excuse for a Christian. How can you even be a pastor? And you're a miserable failure as a dad and a husband. You should just crawl in a cave and go away. That kind of thing. And it's a downward spiral, and it's awful. And I've known the Lord for over 40 years, and I still give in to listening to these lies about myself and about God. And I get so discouraged, and I suffer under them until God somehow breaks into my life and reminds me of the truth like what we sang about earlier. I am a deeply loved child of God with purpose in this world, and I'm following a radical rabbi who's making me an agent of healing and hope in the world like he's doing for all of us. So beware of the accusation tactic too. So that's enough about the enemies of Christmas for a while. I want to end with two things that are very, instead of discouraging, very encouraging. I want to share with you two phrases that are just so full of life. And the first one I'm going to read to you because I wrote it all down. I work hard at making sermons, but every once in a while I feel like the Lord almost just gives me something and I can't write it down fast enough. I stop what I'm doing. I just write it all down as quickly as I can. And I want to share something that God laid on my heart like that for you. So here's the encouraging phrase. Jesus is a threat. Doesn't sound encouraging, but it's so encouraging. Okay, oh, I can't wait. I'm going to actually read this. Jesus was a threat to Herod because he was the new king in town, a king with real authority. Jesus was a threat to Augustus, a real savior, the true son of God, the prince of peace. Jesus is still a threat today. He is a threat to legalistic, fear-based religion that warps people's view of God and is about control and not love. Jesus is a threat to political systems that favor the rich and ignore the needs of the poor. Jesus is a threat to sexist religious leaders who somehow think men are superior to women and should therefore occupy all the positions of leadership in a church. Failing to realize that Jesus was a radical rabbi who elevated the status of women in his culture and included women in important roles of leadership amongst his followers. Jesus is a threat to the notion that God is only for the privileged, the popular, and the white, instead of realizing that God so loved the world, the whole world, no exceptions. Jesus wants everyone to know they belong, rich, poor, white, people of color, young, old, queer, straight, Raider fans, cowboy fans, even pastors. I think God told me that. I might have missed it on the cowboy fan part, but okay. He is a threat to nationalism, to the ridiculous idea that God loves one nation more than any other nation. He is a threat to the idea that power and violence are the answer to the world's problems. Look where that's gotten us. His is a revolution of love. He is even a threat to the American dream, to the notion that our comfort is his ultimate goal, that he will bless us so we can have a fairy tale life. He will bless us, but not so we can hoard it, but so we can bless others, so we can be radically generous people, even when that's not comfortable, not one little bit. He is a threat to the forces of darkness because light always overcomes darkness, always. 
So when people are in spiritual darkness, somehow blinded to the reality of his presence, he shines his light and the darkness dissipates. There is no dungeon so deep that his life can't penetrate. Jesus is a threat, and so are his followers. So that's phrase number one. Phrase number two is this. The war is already won. I loved watching the duck game that Jay mentioned. He's a Husky fan. It must have killed him. But I love watching the duck game because I'm going to be honest with you. I root for the ducks all the time. But I thought Utah was going to roll over the ducks. I thought they were going to slaughter the ducks in this game. So it was quite a pleasant surprise that they actually won. But you know what's fun? Not just watching the ducks win, but when you record it, and you watch a game that they, you know they won, but you watch it back. I don't know if you've ever done this. It's so great, especially games where your team starts out losing. They start out losing. They're like two touchdowns behind, and I'm going, it's okay, Tim, breathe, because I know the final outcome. They win. That's how it is in the spiritual dimension. Our battles spiritually are already won. I want to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Let's read this verse. But thanks be to God... He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is such an important verse. There is no enemy. There is no force of darkness. There is no source of discouragement. Not even death itself is a match for Jesus. He has defeated them all. His love is the most powerful force in the universe. As a scaredy-cat person who struggles with fear and anxiety all the time, I go to a therapist that always reminds me of that. Tim, you don't have to be afraid. His love is the most powerful force in the universe. I have to tell myself that over and over, and it's so true. So, like that verse just said, our labor is not in vain because we get to, by our actions, actually participate in ushering in that victory to the people around us and to the world around us. Oh, that is so great. I saw this in action. I volunteered with my wife at a a local charity lately, and I can't tell people's names or anything. That's against the rules. But but there was quite a few people from our church that were volunteering at it. And one particular saint who's not here today, and I'm kind of glad because I'm going to tell you about her, was amazing. What she did was amazing. They're all amazing, but what she did was amazing. There was a young man there um, that his life is just rough. He's um, addicted to heroin, and it's killing him. It's literally killing him. He's dying of hepatitis and can't quit shooting up. It's just an awful situation. And he was so distraught. And in fact, he was incredibly agitated this time because he needed his next fix and didn't know how he was going to get it. And so when he's in that kind of agitated state, I don't know if you've ever been around people like that, but they become really punky and rude and actually just downright mean. He was being so mean to this young lady in our church. I mean, so rude. It was like I was thinking I might have to step in after a while, but she was handling it so gracefully. She goes downstairs. He'd lost his medicine for his hepatitis. She found it, came up and gave it to him. He was only wearing one sock, no shoes, just one sock and one bare foot. And so she gets him a fresh pair of socks. There was some socks at this location we were at. And she comes up and goes, do you want me to put your socks on? And you got to remember, he'd been a butt to her two minutes before. And she bends down and he goes, yeah, but can you be careful? I got some cuts on my feet and it's, my foot's really sore. And I watch her and my wife watches her and my wife's trying 
rather unsuccessfully not to cry as we're watching, and watching her gently put socks on this young man's feet. And, and I thought in that moment, I was so overwhelmed, I thought, yeah, yeah, light wins. Jesus wins. Love wins. So often, the victories that we usher in in this world are not done through the big and loud moments. They're done through the quiet, gentle, small things that we do when we think nobody else is even watching. Oh, it was glorious. It was so glorious. I want to end by putting a phrase up on the board and, and sharing about this. Here be dragons. What a great graphic. I love my graphic lady. She lives in New York. That's so great. Here be dragons. This is a phrase that was made popular because of the habit of people in medieval times um, drawing maps for sailors. And they draw maps of the known world. And not much of the world was known at this time. So on the edges of these maps, they draw small caricatures of dragons and sea monsters to warn the sailors, hey, if you go beyond what we've explored, it could get ugly out there. Here be dragons. Here be dragons. If Christmas was a map, those words, here be dragons, would be printed around the exterior of the map as a way to remind us, yes, Christmas is wonderful and it's glorious and it's filled with good times, but Christmas has its enemies. Remember that. So go ahead. Go home. Find out how you can get an inflatable dragon. Add it to your yard display. Oh, it's going to create great conversations with your neighbors, okay? Go ahead and fashion for your nativity scene that's one of those precious moments one, okay? Go ahead and fashion a little caricature of a dragon or of Herod or of Augustus, reminding yourself that Christmas has enemies, but they are defeated enemies. Isn't that great news? Let me pray for us, can I? God, Christmas does have enemies, Enemies that push back and resist our attempts to connect with you and to help others connect with you in the life you have for them, Lord. Enemies that resist us doing good and beautiful things. But that's okay, Lord. Please remind us that this season, uh, that those enemies that we face are defeated enemies. The victory is won, and we get to participate in that victory, Lord, in small, quiet acts of kindness that fuel your revolution of love. Our labor is not in vain. Light wins. Love wins. Jesus wins. Christmas wins. May that truth flood our hearts in the next few weeks. We love you. In your name we pray. Everyone said? Amen. Amen. Have a glorious week. Next week is the woman. We're going to talk about how Mary fits into the Christmas story. If you need extra prayer, come up. Jimmy will pray for you. The rest of you have a glorious week. Happy Christmas present shopping. God bless you.